Brighton Landini, and this is the Full Soccer Shop. I'm joined this week by my co-host Matt DeGeorge from the Delta Times, and we talk to Marcus Epps, winger for the Philadelphia Union, and we also talk about the World Cup to get you ready for the big tournament. Kind of a tough result last week against Toronto at home, but you get to get a chance to bounce back against another a rival, but in the Open Cup. Uh, what's what's the mood right now with the team? Uh, you know, the guys are just trying to, we're uh, working hard to get back in, in the form of the ring. You know, I think uh, the Toronto game was a tough loss, but uh, um, as a group right now, we're just focused on the next one and getting back to uh, that good form. Marcus, it's it's Matt to George. Uh, I'm wondering. It seems like Jim Curtin has really worked out a really good balance with you guys as wingers, and uh, whether it's you or Fafa or David Akam, um, it seems like you guys have really figured out some roles. What's that process been like for you guys as a group? Oh, it's been great. You know, um, there's a lot of good talent, especially on the team. You know, and it's a good competition of guys, you know, a good group of guys, and I think Coach has done a great job, you know, rotating. And um, most of, you know, each player, we're similar, you know. A lot of guys are fast, skillful. So uh, Coach just pretty much expects the same thing, you know, from each player. So it's been great to be able to uh, have that rotation, you know, with the talent that we have in the wings, you know. Let's talk about your season a little bit. You started out the year in Bethlehem, weren't really in the mix yet. Slowly, you were in the 18. Then you were being used as a sub. Now you're getting some starts. What, what's the trajectory been like for you this season? Uh, it's been great. You know, um, like you said earlier in the year, I was still getting good games with them as well. You know, staying fit, staying sharp, and training with the team as well, trying to progress, you know, and grow as a player. And um, you know, the trajectory has been awesome to to be able to be in the lineup and of recent games and start in the recent games and be able to help the team when I come on, you know, and I think that's the the main point for me right now is to continue to grow and continue that trajectory and um, help the team out in any way I can. Marcus, Jim, uh, Jim's mentioned to us a couple times that in the preseason, maybe you came out of the preseason not as high on his depth chart as you went into it, and I know Jim gave you some opportunities last year and always spoke very highly of you last year, and he's done that now this year too. But what did you learn in that preseason of, I guess, some things to overcome to get you now to where you are? Um, yeah, I know um, it's it's a tough game, you know, especially with the depth that we have in our wing position. You know, there's a lot of talented guys, a lot of guys with great resumes and stuff. And for me personally, it was, you know, um, I started – hot, you know, with the work rate and, and um, you know, getting after it. And, it, and I kind of learned that you have to continue to do so and continue to grow. It's not, it's a long season, you know, and it's not just the first month of preseason. So I think that was a big lesson for me to, to, to not have to produce all at once and to just continue to grow throughout the season and work on my game. And, and I think that's uh, the lesson I've been, been using for the season, you know, to, to help, um, Keegan Rosemary, you've been playing a lot on the right, and Keegan Rosenberry is the you know the right side fullback. He's had a real bounce back year. What's it like playing with him now? He, he's he's got his game back, and are you guys like kind of how do you guys communicate as far as like you know working the overlaps and things like that? Uh, Keegan is an excellent player. You know he's he's really smart, really good on the ball, really calm on the ball. So it's pretty easy to play with him. You know he. Um, don't have to do too much you just say a few communication tips you know we talk about a few things that maybe the team is missing um on the opposing team is missing defensively and how we can get after him and then he just he just executes you know keeping a very smart soccer player and very talented you know so it's been a great partnership to work with him and to continue working with him you know so i think that's just going to only get better the more time goes with a player like keegan um so, you know, you got the cup game coming up. It's a little different competition. Is there a different way you guys prepare for a cup game as opposed to, to a league game where, you know, if it's like a one-and-done kind of thing, you guys you guys lose, you're out of it? Is, is there is there any kind of 
any kind of difference when when you go into a cup game like this? Um, no, it's not much different from the, a cup game with uh, MLS games. You know, coach says it that um, you know it's only two trophies to win in in North America, pretty much, and this is one of them. So um, we put a lot of emphasis into these games. You know, our training is pretty much the same. The only only thing added probably would be you know PKs, the aspect of tie games in and in PKs. You know, so other than that, we attack it how we will attack any other league game you try to get all three points so marcus we're we're coming up on the uh on the world cup tomorrow uh tomorrow for yeah. you listeners at home as, as we tape this um what are you looking forward to in the world cup uh, i'm just i'm looking forward to you know seeing all the talent there's a lot of talent in this world cup and and um a lot of young guys you know so i'm i'm just looking forward to seeing how not only how guys perform now, but how, you know, what's expected in the future and, and, and to see the, the shape of, you know, soccer in the world right now and, and to get a good picture and see that community and unity in, in Russia and stuff is going to be exciting, you know. So I'm just looking forward to, you know, <laughs> every game. We got we to gotta put you on the spot and ask you who's going to win the World Cup. Oh man! <laughs> well, if uh, U.S. is in, I say U.S., but I'm going with Brazil. You know, that's my team. Is Fab- is Fabinho making you say that? <laughs> <laughs> nah, it's not on him. Man. We this is something we agree on. You know. <laughs> so I I got to ask because I I was out at training today and asking a few other guys for a feature. But uh, what's your first World Cup memory? It seems like for so many guys, the World Cup is such an entry point into the sport of soccer. What's your fir- what's the first World Cup memory that you have? Uh, definitely. Um, I think that was first World Cup was 2002 that I remember. I believe that was 2002. Um, when I was young and in, in Mississippi, that was the only uh, only soccer games that would come on TV. So uh, that was my first introduction into soccer other than playing, you know, in the park. So World Cups are very special to me. I hold up here as a family. We come together, talk about the games, watch the games and stuff. So it's just a great time, you know, for, uh, you know, all families, a lot of families around the world and a lot of players. So it's going to be a good one. Well, Marcus, I want to thank you very much for uh, coming on with us tonight. Uh, Good luck against Red Bull and uh, good luck the rest of the season, man. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Take care. Have a nice day. You too, man. Thanks. And that was uh, Philadelphia Union winger forward uh, Marcus Epps. And we're going to bring in Matt DeGeorge once again, warming up that co-host seat for us this week. Uh, Matt from the Delco Times, as as we know. Uh, I'm pretty sure Mike's, uh, judging by his Instagram pics, Mike is not coming back. He's never coming no. back. He is floating down a river. He is going to with, rename with, himself Michel. <laughs> I think he would be fine with a beret and living in the countryside yeah, of France. Him and his lovely uh, new wife are floating down the river somewhere in France and taking pictures and probably eating cheese and drinking wine and living the good life. And we're here talking about the and here And here we are for you because we love you, our listeners. Um Good to talk to Marcus. Really positive guy. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, he's he's got a the way that he's developed in the last two years. He's got a lot of things to be positive about. He I mean, really, yeah. He's really stepped up, and I, I think uh, the union have uh, certainly trumpeted young players, mm-hmm. and that's mostly homegrowns. But when you look at what they've done with him and Jack Elliott, getting them later in the draft, and Marcus Epps is absolutely earning his time. It's not a case of. He's a high draft pick where they have to get him time because they're invested because he is playing ahead mm-hmm. of Fabian Herbers, who is a high draft yeah. pick. And Epps has done more on the field in the last year and change and has done more, I think, probably in training to prove that he deserves those minutes and he's earned them. Yeah, and it's it's funny because I, I've been a booster for Fabian Herbers. I mean, last year he had you know just the injuries and it was really tough for him to get online. And he had the opportunity earlier this season and didn't really take it. I don't know if it was some lingering injury issues or just the first three games or so that he played and he he didn't really equip himself well. And yeah. and just was talking with Marcus, like I said, he you know he started in Bethlehem, then kind of made the eighteen, then was kind of a sub. Now he's starting, and he, every like every step he's taking that opportunity. And I think I think Epps provides a little bit of an in between look of. You have a Calm and you have Pico who are really more forwards than midfielders. 
and they're the straight ahead guys. Mm-hmm. And then you have Ilsenio, who is not the straight ahead guy. He's very <laughs> much the you know the you know I know he's a winger by trade, but at this point he's really a number ten mm-hmm. as the Union see him. And Epps occupies, and, and with with Herbers, he's more of the inverted type, like yeah. Pontius was in you know last year. Now with Epps, he's a little bit in between. I think there's no doubt that he's a midfielder as opposed to a forward, but he's a guy that has the speed to beat his man, but also can come in and hit a shot or can mm-hmm. get to the byline, can hit a cross. And he's really he he gives you a different look, which I think is important. Yeah. I always like his runs. I think he he makes those good kind of diagonal runs. He likes to run at the post. Um, and you saw that even early early on in his career when he first came in as a rookie that he 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 he, he was a kind of a straight ahead guy. He was. A guy that would kind of cut in and would you know run out of defense and kind of cut in and make those 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 near post runs and things like that, uh, which this team needs because they have a lot of guys that kind of go up and down the rails. You know? And he he's very willing to take guys on with the ball in his feet, mm-hmm. and he's pretty good technically. He can get a cross off. He can shoot. He can do a lot of things. He's also a lot. He's also deceptively uh, physical. Mm-hmm. I think he's about six foot six one. Right. So when he's going up against right or left backs, he can kind of outmuscle them a right. little bit, which is not something that you get with a Com or Pico. No, it's true. It's funny. You don't think of that in his game, but if you kind of examine it, you're right. He does have a little strength to him, and you just think of he's a quick, skilled guy. He's just going to kind of juke and get away from people. But no, he'll he'll, he'll, he'll take the body, you know, and he, he doesn't shy away from that. Um, so let's talk quickly about on the field with the union. Uh, really disappointing result, I think. I mean, we've talked about Toronto. I've talked about Toronto on the podcast and in various spots that – they're Toronto. They're very good. They they're stacked with with talent, but they're kind of floundering. They're on the on the wrong side of the, of the red line with the Union. I, I think the uh, their whole uh, Champions League escapade took a lot of wind out of their sails. Plus, they've been injured a lot, and they've had you know not great results. So you get this team that's injured, that's probably a little tired, probably a little low on on confidence. You get them in your house. You think, you know, that's, you know, it's a wounded beast. You know, let's go out there and take care of it. And the union lives to nothing. Yeah. And I think the union did enough to get a result except for finishing. Yeah. You know, that's the difference is that um, Jonathan Osorio takes two chances. He takes them really well and they're probably half chances, but he, he takes them and finishes them. And the union squander a couple of really good chances. I think I, I saw the expected goals from the match and I think they were at about two and a half expected mm-hmm. goals and to get none that's that's a finishing issue and I don't even think I don't even necessarily know that Alex Bono stood on his head all that much but you know there are there are goals that you need to put in in that game and and that's that's the difference and maybe you can say that without Bedoya without Harris they lack two of the guys that are going to do those things mm-hmm. um, but even still it has to be better it has to be better in terms of finishing and and that's that's holding this team back at this point. Let's talk about So we've talked about expected goals off and on this season on the show. And I posted on Twitter and it kind of an explainer. And, and like a lot of these uh, analytical things, they're a good tool. They're not the, they're not the, they're means they're not an end. And they, they, there's something there that they're used to tell you something. Basically they're not, you know, like I said, they're not the end. They're, they're just a tool. So what it's telling me, is and this is probably obvious that if your expected goals are in the two range and have been, I think most of the season, mm-hmm. some games higher, lower, but in, in that range, doesn't it tell you you get the wrong guys or guy out there trying to do your finishing for you? Yeah, it it tells you <laughs> that you are. It tells you that you are underperforming in your finishing from where you should. It tells them. I guess the flip side is that maybe you're overperforming in your chance creation. Mm-hmm. But you're not finishing off the chances that you're getting compared to what, by the numbers, can be reasonably expected over a large sample size from chances generated at that area from that kind of setup, which is how they determine this. So and it is a fine balance that I think Jim Curtin's trying to walk is between you want to put in people who can finish those chances while not taking out too many people who are going to stop you from creating those chances. Mm-hmm. So it wouldn't make sense to go out and in the hypothetical universe where the union aren't the union, go out and buy three forwards and replace your entire front line 
and then think that that's going to magically create goals. That might not work because then you're not creating the same amount of chances. But it does indicate that they, I would think, need to do something differently, whether that's changing people or just changing the way that they go about something in their process that's going to lead to better finishing. Um, I think it's it's also a difficult balance because for people like David Akam and for CJ Sapong, they are finishing at a lower rate than they ever have. So there's in their careers in MLS and for CJ Sapong, if you look at the year-on-year numbers, he underperformed in terms of uh, finishing chances on expected goals two years ago, then way overperformed last year, then way is way underperforming this year. So the middle somewhere in there. And what Jim Curtin's response to the first 15 games of the season has been is to be patient and wait for them to regress back to the mean. But basically. We've, we've seen with CJ, and we saw it not last year, but the year before, uh, where, you, like you said, he underperformed. But his, his these funks for him can last and last and last. And I hate to turn him in, in you know, and I'm not pointing him as the source of all the union's problems, but it's a factor. He's your he's your he's your striker in a lone striker position. He has to score goals. And Jim talks about he's our first line of defense. He does a lot of things that are, are on the score sheet, which is fine. But you know that's fine for an Ali Bedoya. But for a guy that's your striker, st- strikers need to score for me. And he could do all the things that. Don't show up on the score sheet. He can body up defenders. He could be that that first line and be like you know like a use a hockey term be be that four checker, right. if, if 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 you will. He could be that, but he's got to at some point knock goals in. Yeah, and I think all that informs his probably understated role in the chance creation is mm-hmm. that they're the amount of chances that they've created this season are probably as high as they are in part because CJ Sapong's influence. But if you're not change, if you're not finishing those chances, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter how many you create. You can create a thousand mm-hmm. chances right. in a game. But if you're not if you're if you're not going to finish them, obviously, if you, if you create more chances, there's usually a greater likelihood that you are going to finish some of said chances. But it doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. And that's what Curtin's trying to balance now is if you take him out, if you take someone like Sapong out, and say you put in uh, Corey Burke, is he going to still? have as many chances to finish, and then you you, you have all these sliding scales that right. they're trying to balance. So, I, mean, I don't think they've balanced it great thus far. No, and do you sacrifice a little bit of that? I mean, that's the question. And you have a guy that's a second provider now that you feel pretty regularly in Fafa. I mean, he's become, from that left side, a guy that can set other people up. That, also, also, though, not a clinical finisher. No, as, he's not. As, and, as the break, possibly <laughs> even worse when it's 1v1. Yeah. Yeah, he's. I think it's a little better when he's not thinking about it. He's a little more of an instinct. I, I don't know, but he's sometimes his his decision making in the final third is is wanting, and and I'll, I'll I'll admit that. But again, we're talking about balance here, and do you balance that with the fact that he's your second playmaker out there on the field after after Borek? But again, it doesn't mean anything if nobody's scoring. So you know, it, it it's just like this. You know this, this feedback loop we're on now with with this team and finishing and scoring. It feels like some of the feedback loops that would happen in like 2013, 2014, This is a higher order one at mm-hmm. least, and I don't know how exactly the union get out of that. I think one way to get out of it is to introduce a new a new face or a new thought. Um, I think that it's just an odd quirk of CD. If you look at CJ Sapong's history. He's been at his best with the Philadelphia Union when he's being challenged. He had mm-hmm. a rough 2014. 2015, he has a good season. When they bring in his supposed replacement, Fernando Aristigueta, mm-hmm. he has a great season. Last year, they bring in his supposed replacement, Jay Simpson. He has a career season. This year, CJ Sapong is the guy, and right. he's not having a very good season. And I, I don't, I, I hesitate to say that because I don't see a lot of signs of complacency in the way that CJ Sapong works. He's a very hard worker, and he takes a beating out there. Yeah, absolutely. So it's not like he's gliding through with a contract. I don't want to. I don't want to intimate that. Mm. But when you look at the larger sample size, you know that kind of says something. I don't know what exactly it says. <laughs> Maybe it's a, a heck of a coincidence. All right. But it would be interesting. And I mean, if you go out and 
over this summer, and I'm going to say this as many times as I'm going to be allowed to come into the studio, if you go into if you go into the summer and you replace Jay Simpson with a forward who is going to legitimately challenge CJ Sapong for that number one job and at least put into CJ Sapong's head there's a future in which you and Fafa Pico are the platoon on one wing with this forward up top and Epps and Akam on the other wing, then maybe that does something to him. I don't know. Right. Maybe you get that additive benefit of the next guy that you bring in, even if he's not super productive, he's going to somehow spur CJ Sapong into being productive. I and, think there's I think there's a danger here in the inaction that I can see Jim Curtin embarking on down the road of waiting for these guys to come around, whether it's a calm or Sapong. The attack is the reason why they're not winning games. Mm-hmm. And if they don't find a way to proactively change that, that could be problematic. No, and it can be. And, you know, Burke is a guy I've said I think should get a little more of a run out there. I, I've the counterbalance is that, well, you know, he's good in a burst. He's good, you know, being that energy guy off the, off the off the bench, and that's fine. But you need somebody to score goals. And and like you said, Burke hasn't been that guy to push CJ yet. But maybe if he plays more, scores a little more, that does light that fire that you mentioned in CJ. I mean, they, they I both, mean it's possible. They both have the same number of MLS goals this year. They both have two. Yeah. And, uh, and I don't, Burke's done it in less time. Uh, much less time. Yeah. I, I don't know that there's necessarily a way for them to coexist on the field, and I don't know that Jim Curtin has in the past really done a great job of platooning guys all mm-hmm. that much, especially at a position like striker. I don't think CJ Sapong is always that effective when he comes in off the bench. He's more of a guy who has to kind of get that physicality yeah. early. I would like to see him maybe come to that understanding a little bit more with Sapong of like, hey, if you're struggling, you're going to get 60 minutes, and if it's not there, then we're going to get Burke in there, and we're going to try something different. Or, you know, put put your 90 minutes of running and physicality into 60 minutes. Not that physicality is often an issue with mm-hmm. CJ Sapong. But, you know, come to those different understandings. And that's where I think coaching comes in, and that's where a coach earns his keep. And certainly it's where a coach knows a lot more than I do because, you know, yeah. I'm not a coach. Like he also earns more than I do, so <laughs> it makes a little bit of sense. You would hope. Um, yeah, I, I don't I don't know what, what the answer is apart from making that move before the window closes. I think that I think that will speak volumes. I think that will show a lot of things. I think, you know, it's something I talk about this team – yeah, I, I did it on the, the roundtable we did. Uh, you, you weren't there, which was a lot of fun with it. I was not. I was busy talking to Jay Sugarman that day. That was good with the, yeah. with the, with Sean Brace and Tanwell. Was it Jonathan Tanwell and Kevin Kate, all those guys? But Podcast Wars. Podcast Wars. There the you go. The roundtable. Um, and it was, it was a lot of fun, by the way. If anybody got a chance to listen to it, it was pretty cool. But, Three podcasts enter, one podcast leaves. <laughs> but I, I think this team's got to start showing some ambition beyond we're getting the academy guys out there. We're playing the young guys they have to show and striker put, is put such money, a put the money where the words are and striker is such a position you can upgrade they need to upgrade i mean your, your defense you've got all these young kids playing and playing really well your midfield is is what it is now you got the three the, that three veterans your, your wings are you know you kind of got guys rotating on both sides Fafa's kind of locked up the, the left but the right's been rotated a lot but it's just that that vacuum yeah. <laughs> at striker, and you have to make that decision. Is what we have good enough? I don't know. I don't think so. Or do we have to make that move? And I think they have to make that move if they want to make the playoffs. I mean, I think they have a little bit of time to have that happen. Mm-hmm. They have, you know, if in the next stretch of June, Sapong gets hot, I still think David Akam has a hot streak in him at some point. But there is a there is a danger to waiting that long. And if if you believe that this union team is one impact striker away from being not just a playoff team, but a playoff factor, mm-hmm. and I think that you could make a case that there is, then go out and get him. And we're yeah. not. Well, I'm, I'm not sitting here and saying go out and get you know go out and get Joseph Martinez. I'm not saying go out and get Olivier Giroud. <laughs> I'm not saying go out and get whoever wins the golden boot at the yeah. at the World Cup, but go get someone. And at least if you're going to make a mistake, make a mistake of action, which is going to 
certainly, I don't know when the new sporting director is going to come in, but if the sporting director's first mistake in Philadelphia is a mistake of action along those lines of getting a striker to try and strive for the playoffs, that, that person is going to endear himself yeah. or herself, more, most likely himself, instantly to the fan base. Well, you can't, you can't do what you did last year in the window, which was run which up the was, white flag. Which was where, where, where you just kind of shrugged and said, okay, we're kind of giving up on, on this season. You just sat on your hands. You can't, you can't do that again. You can't do that again. The, your fan base isn't going to accept it. And it just shows a terminal lack of ambition yeah. if, if you do that. And you've made, I think they've made a lot of good steps. I think, you know, they made the, the, the common move in good faith. He, he hasn't panned out. He hasn't panned out. Those things happen. But with the youth movement, with, you know, it took Dutch Gell to get, get his feet on him, but he's done well. They've, I think, handled the winger situation pretty well up to now. And Bedoya and Harris are, you know, the, the Atlanta game notwithstanding, have have been you know very rock solid. Have been what you expect them to be for the most part. I mean, Harris I think had had a little tough stretch early on, but he's played a lot better. And Bedoya I think has played his best soccer so far in a Philadelphia Union jersey this season. Mm-hmm. Um, for the next, they have the potential for the next three to five years to have their three center backs, two outside backs, and their goalie combined for about a million dollar salary. Mm-hmm. That is a wonderful platform to go and take risks. That that exactly right. That is a because wonderful platform. We we talked about. I think we talked about it last week how you use your cat, and we talked about monetizing it. And you talk about you're getting value for money with these guys now, where you know where you can in the cost of finding them, and in the cost of paying them, and in the course, and in in the cost of them being under organizational control. Right. You you that's that's value right there. That you again can like you just said you can parlay where you can. Go out and take a risk on a, on a on a crafty midfielder. You can go out and take a risk on on a pay, maybe overpaying a little bit for a striker because you know you need you have such a desperate need at that position. Right. You can take these risks because you're so rock solid now with with this with this youth in the back. And you avoid by doing that, you avoid what I think is happening a lot of other places like D.C., like Colorado, uh, even like San Jose to a certain aspect where you have that odds and ends craft store kind of thing where it's just a jumble of pieces that right. are, are not fitting. You have that platform, and you can do that. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about the World Cup Let's now? talk about the World Let's Cup. Let's talk about good soccer. Uh, okay, a couple things. First and foremost, that's coming back to the United States. Yay. There you go. 2026, um, you know, that's kind of three-headed bid with Mexico and Canada, and... And I said I was I was on the air this morning. We're talking about it, and and I said the United States needed kind of this boost because they're not in the World Cup. They're in such a transitional spot. They have, they you know besides Pulisic and Sargent, they're really just you know pushing some of these kids through to see what they got. Um, Beyond soccer, they're not exactly pushing themselves onto the international stage as a leader in many other areas. Uh, is how we'll delicately. <laughs> Uh, say that. For, okay. Yeah. Um, you know, we're going to pick a fight with a Canadian podcast at, at the end. Stay tuned. <laughs> exactly. Well, there you go. The um, oh, you're talking about that. All right. Yeah. The, <laughs> the you know, your head coaching situation is still a big question mark uh, for the men's. Uh, you know, the women's are still women are still the standard bearer for the United States Federation. I mean, they're starting to age a bit as, as a unit, but. There's still there's some good there's some there's plenty of good talent yeah but there's still talent through, yeah. there there's still all that so th- it's such a transitional period for your soccer like there hasn't been p- probably since this you know since probably since like ninety or ninety four there's such this much flux yeah and to kind of finally win you know win off the field and get that World Cup and be able to be they're going to host the majority of the games. The bulk of the games are going to be in the United States, with Canada, and Mexico, kind of filling out the sides. But um, yeah, it's it's that's it's exciting, and it's 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 a way forward now. Plus, you qualified. Plus. <laughs> there you go. Plus, you qualified. You're in but, the 2026 World Cup. Yeah, the, I mean, they have to qualify for 2022, and I, I think they will. I think they'll hopefully get this figured yeah, out. Who the heck knows? In, in four years, they'll figure this out. Depends on how, according to, according to all the things I've heard from Bruce Arena, it depends on how rainy it is in Trinidad. We'll get to that in a moment. We'll get to that. In I've a got moment. a rant stored up. Uh, I think we both do. I think it's. I, I do think it's a very big thing, and I think that uh, you know Jim Curtin talked a little bit about this, and we talked to Alejandro Bedoya today at training. 
But and you you heard it with Marcus Epps. There is a transformative effect that the World Cup can have that MLS, even at its best, maybe can't have all the time. And it brings people in and it widens the tent. Mm-hmm. And whatever kind of metaphor you want to use, it's such a powerful sporting spectacle. And there's a lot of things that are wrong behind the scenes. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. There's a lot of things that FIFA does, and there's a lot of things that um, regional and national federations do in terms of how they use the riches that come from the World Cup to you know, prop up bad governments or prop up bad administrations or enforce gender discrimination that mm. are bad. Right. But the soccer product itself, if we can view it in a vacuum, ethically thorny as that proposition is, is amazing. Mm-hmm. And it's a powerful thing for kids all over the United States to be able to see that and to, to experience it live and all those kinds of things. And it's going to... When the World Cup is here, it's going to create soccer fans. And creating soccer fans not only creates money for American soccer, which is what a lot of the people in uh, you know, the boardrooms in Russia today were probably celebrating, but it creates this economic capital right. uh, and this attention capital that it, it draws people in. And I don't – I'm not saying this look, kind of look down at people, but I think there are a lot of sports – the general sports fan that treat the World Cup like they treat the Olympics. Like every four years, they're into soccer. and They plug in, and then when it's over, they yeah. move on. Yeah. So, so, but every four years, though, you capture a few of them that get into the sport that, say, you live in Kansas City or you've never been to a sporting game. Oh, yeah, I, I had fun sitting on my couch watching these games. Well, I'll head down to sporting, you know, or in Seattle or Philly or anywhere. I mean, you get – they see it on TV and – the regular sports fan knows that the TV experience is one thing, but the live experience is something else. So maybe they say, and MLS, I think in almost all the cities, it's still a good ticket. Yeah. It's still a, you know, you, you know, you get, you're going to get, you're going to get good soccer. You're going to get in the case this year. I mean, for, for MLS to have 19 players playing in the world cup without the U S being there is remarkable. So there's a, you know, there's a, better than even chance that you're going to see someone from the World Cup yeah. that you see on TV at your local it's, MLS And it's, it's a good ticket for value. I mean, it's, it's still a relatively cheap ticket in most, I think, in most markets where you can bring your kids you know, or you can bring your buddies or you, you can... Without a second mortgage. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Like, it's it's not, you know, NHL and NFL can really price you out. The NBA kind of... The NBA kind of... It's kind of the whims of the you know, how the teams are. NBA fans are... You know, we've seen it in Philly, like the stadium could get empty, you know, full, things like that. So it's still, you know, you still got a good good value for the MLS ticket, I think, you know, league-wide. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you, and you, got, you got these nice modern, mostly modern stadiums. I mean, DC is finally getting their new one. Is that open yet? <laughs> no, it is not. I think uh, I think coming up soon because they're still on that long road trip. It'll yeah. be open by the time that, I think the Union go there in like right, right. late so the, August. Yeah, you know, they're September. getting their new stadium. You know, the Portland experience everybody raves about uh, Atlanta and on TV. I really want to go there. But that LAFC stadium looks phenomenal. I will be TV. going there. Actually, I'm, I'm going to be headed out there for that game. That, so uh, I'm, I'm that very is like, excited. That, I remember just watching, watching, I forget which game it was. but We'll, that, do, the, we'll do the remote broadcast We could do that. And just, I, just saw, yeah. I just saw it on TV and I just perked up. I was like, wow, yeah. that is a great looking place to see soccer. So one day I hope to get out there, but uh, you know, th- my point is that you know, the World Cup helps the sport and not having the U.S. in it is a huge bummer, obviously, just for the fans standpoint. But this this gives us a glimmer now. This gives us something to shoot towards. This, the, the fact that they, that they're in it. You know, I I look at how many people point to nineteen ninety four World Cup and a lot of those players that remember that we were talking to Jim Curtin about this mm-hmm. today, and he was in high school then. But a lot of the kids that were young then are now probably late stage veterans yeah. in, in MLS. But it's such an important experience seeing that, and I you know I I not to not to plug this, but I. I wrote a story for The Athletic about Anthony Fontana's graduation and talking to his parents. You know, they're of Italian descent, and he mentioned the 2006 World Cup as being something where he watched that and watched that Italian team and just became obsessed with the sport. Mm-hmm. And so many guys that we talk to today, they have those moments of, you know, Bork, for Bork Dolchkal, it was 1998 in France when when the World Cup came to Europe, that it just it just clicks with you and it yeah. just resonates and it makes you love that sport. And I can remember 
you know, I can remember the ninety, you know, the ninety eight World Cup, watching uh, that great Senegal team and stuff like that, and you just it it's just your entry point into this entire mm-hmm. thing, and you find out that these countries, all these guys go play for clubs, and right. they're all in all these different countries, and they have these weird names and these funny uniform colors that have sponsored names on it, and you know all that kind of stuff. It just opens your eyes to an entire world of possibilities. And to have that here in the U.S. and to have young kids look at that and see, wow, look at this sport. There's 80,000 people in this stadium and some of them are excited out of their minds mm-hmm. to see this sport. This must be something special. Yeah, and, and you know, my earliest World Cup memory is, it was probably, I guess it was 86 and I was watching it at my grandma's house and I think I was watching Argentina. It was a while ago, obviously. <laughs> and I... And just the U.S. broadcasters just couldn't figure out how to broadcast soccer at that point. So every once in a while, every 10 minutes or so, you would just, the screen would turn into this box and it would be this red frame and it was a Budweiser ad as the game was happening in the middle. And that that just kind of, it's one of those things that gets burned into your head. But, you know, and I just, I don't know. I, I, you know, my fandom really kind of kicked up, I guess, kind of. You know, I was I played in high played badly in high school. Always like to preface that, but you know, through to I was always kind of peripheral fan, and I and it just you know, you know, just in '06, I really kicked up and kicked up and kicked up, and a lot of it's the World Cup and all that. '98, I remember '98 was a great World Cup and uh, watching all that. But yeah, it's just something. It was such a I just accepted the sport really easily, like I accepted the other four sports and. Just because it's there, it's a sport. I can watch. I like watching sports, so I'm going to watch this sport. And it and I kind of adjusted to the rules of it, and it kind of went from there. And and, and it, it wasn't until I was older I realized kind of how alien, less so, much less so now, but back in the 80s and 90s, kind of how alien the sport was still to a lot of people. And it, and obviously it's changed dramatically, but and how kind of out, kind of a little bit on the outside I was for watching it, which which I thought I always thought it was weird, but. Uh, yeah, the, the World Cup's just, and the last World Cup was a great on the field. The 2010, I think, was a good spectacle. I don't think the yeah. gameplay was that great. I thought the gameplay in 2014, especially through the group stages, I thought it was great because you don't really see teams. A lot of times, it's they're a little cagey in the group stages. They kind of want to get that draw early and all that. But I thought most of the teams just kind of went for it in, in the group stages, which was a lot of fun. Yeah, I just love any World Cup that gives you day soccer. Yeah, that like helps. That. Having, uh, being able to wake up at like... You know, for my journalist night schedule at, at nine, nine, ten o'clock in the morning and have soccer on. That's, uh, I remember, that's good. I remember waking up at five in the morning for the O2 Cup in Japan. And yeah, that was that was rough. And I was working, and also I was working a really early morning uh, uh, a radio gig down the shore. And I was there kind of by myself in the studio watching the final at like six in the morning. <laughs> the good thing about that is back in O2, there was not enough internet that you could plausibly watch it on on an eight hour delay. So I, I think a couple times I watched on tape delay, right? And I was fine with that because right. I didn't, I, I didn't have a computer. My first, <laughs> since we're sharing in my first World Cup memory, nineteen ninety four. At which point I was five, yeah, five. And um, growing up in New York, my my family's Italian, so my father and uncle got tickets to uh, the Italy Bulgaria game mm-hmm. at which I guess was the quarters or the semis. Okay. Uh, at at Giant Stadium, mm-hmm. I don't remember which one, and they didn't bring me. <laughs> I was angry as it was hotter than anything. They brought me back a cup from the stadium, which was lovely. But right. I remember being extremely angry that I did not get a chance right, to go right, to that right. game. But you know, as as a kid who understood American sports and understood the mm-hmm. leagues, to be young in say around the ninety eight or oh two World Cup, once you had the internet and were able to look these things up. And to realize that this entire system that you had no idea mm-hmm. about existed, like all these clubs and all these leagues with this storied history, it's amazing. And I think new fans really see yeah. that. And the most soccer I remember, we're just going down memory lane now here a little yeah, bit. Yeah, this but is just the, rem, the, the World Cup reminiscent now. Do you remember Sports Channel? I'm sure got people yes, out there. Yes, sport, I do. They used to do like kind of an hour wrap up from the English, England I don't remember. I don't remember that. I do remember that Sports Channel existed. Yeah. I remember that growing up in New York, MSG used to have, uh, used to have but, replays of soccer games was, on at three o'clock was in the by, morning. That was my big portal into the game. Apart from the World Cup, was like the hour long, weekly kind of roundup of English soccer they used to run, and they would show like maybe twenty minutes 
chunks of games, like kind of highlight, you know, condensed games and stuff like that and talk about the standings and I'm like, promotional allegation, what's that mean? And I, I remember <laughs> I, I I think I remember uh Sunday afternoons when RAI would uh would broadcast Italian games right. and you'd have whatever that fanfare of the trumpet is that would break <laughs> in and they'd cut to whatever goal was scored right, and right, I had right. no idea what was going on. But yeah. it was yeah, it was fun to watch. Um yeah. So currently my favorite story in the upcoming World Cup was a game. Oh insane I'm gonna say Iceland. Well, I love Iceland. That's great going through Iceland and um, talking to people who would all then list all their connections to right. everyone on the team, which right. was great. It's 300,000 yeah, people in the country. I mean, yeah. yeah, I mean, the Spain story is interesting. Um, Fernando Hierro playing high two I mean, days I mean, before the tournament. I mean, Louis van Gaal did the same thing in 2014. He, he, he yeah, was going to coach through the tournament. Took over Manchester United. I would say coast end of this cycle probably have their next job picked out already. Right, and listen, the, the Spain Spain manager did something kind of the federation, but I mean, th- this is kind of business. This, these things happen. I mean, Real, Real Madrid is the is the club of the crown in right. in Spain, and Spain going through its little factional issues right now. Also, right. as a new prime minister. I think there's a lot of things going on behind the scenes for the world. There were a lot of people. I mean, I kind of didn't, but I was reading a lot of spots that were saying that. they're, you know, they're the cagey team. They're the friends. They could go in there and just kind of grind. Off. I don't think this is the the Xavi Iniesta. No, no, days. no. And that, 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 that come in the first day and just uh, all right, guys, play. Uh, I'll change something if I have to. Yeah, like, just, I, just keep I, doing what you were doing. What's the blueprint for that? <laughs> I so who? I'm thinking. Since I put Marcus Epps, Epps on the spot, so we have to put I'm ourselves thinking, on the spots. 14. Uh, what, what happened in 2014? Oh, Does I anyone t- remember? Wow. Uh, I think funny or strange. We, we've just had a better part of this decade, the Ronaldo-Messi argument and who's better, who's going to end. Neymar just blows by both of them and wins the World Cup. It, it wouldn't we get, be. We could throw William in that dis- debate after yeah. he scores the game winning, you know, the tournament winning goal. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. But, but, you know, everybody wants. And Argentina kind of my sympathetic pick because I do want to see Messi. For the same reason that you would root for the Washington Capitals to see Alex Ovechkin. Well, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It just, you just kind of want to see, you know, you want to see the king finally get his crown. And. You know, Maradona has you know has had World Cup success. Pele has had World Cup success. You just you know, and Messi's been talked about in the same sentence with those two guys. So, does it tarnish if he, it does it tarnish his career if he doesn't get it? I, I I don't know. I mean, it's a different game than it was when those two guys, when when Pele and Maradona were playing. The, the, the things like the Champions League are a lot more important. Club soccer is a lot bigger than it was, and. Or a lot more interconnected than it was, and a lot of people are more aware of the clubs and, and the competitions. Uh, so I don't know, I don't know, but just something tell, tells me Brazil that they they they're going to come in the year with a chip on their shoulder. I think they they went in last World Cup feeling like they already earned it mm-hmm. and just got hammered and got humiliated for it. So I think they kind of have a different attitude. So that that's I'm kind of going I'm kind of going with Brazil. I was initially thinking Germany, but they seem like they're leaking oil a little bit. So it just—it's uh, very difficult to repeat. I yeah. mean, I, I think on paper they're probably one of the better teams. Um, I think on paper the most talented team is France. Yeah. Um, but I'm not sure. They—they they were my pick in the in the Philly soccer page online pool. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, I went France. I'm gonna have to live with that. Uh, that midfield and that defense is so good. Yeah. And they're just so deep. That they're yeah. outstanding. I mean, you could say the same thing for Belgium, uh, but I don't know that Roberto Martinez really knows Belgium, who the best eleven is yeah, for that team quite and yet. Belgium feels I'm like not the, a, I'm not a huge fan of leaving Nyingalen home yeah. in in favor of some of the guys that they did bring. Um, so yeah, I, Belgium feels like they're always going to be that going to be team. They're going to be this. They're going to do that. They always feel like that to me. Like yeah, but every, I, I everybody... think the Netherlands also felt like that too with that generation that they had. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was now eight years ago. Um, right. I think they felt like that with that generation. But yeah. then that generation did make it to, know, make it get to the pretty final. far. And yeah, and we're within our goal yeah. against. Spain. I don't even. I don't even think I have a really out of left field pick. Uh, no, trying to think. I don't. I always. Kinda, I would have to study the bracket a little bit. I always more pull to for see African like, teams because I, I think they just bring something. Yeah. Fun to the tournament, so I, I. But even that, even that's kind of difficult this year because mm-hmm. you know, no Ghana, 
Yeah, they're they're traditionally you've got Marat- they're, they're they're traditionally a kind of your king kill you know the, yeah. the, the spoilers and I mean you've got th- you've got three three uh, northern African teams this yeah. year yeah with Tunisia and and Egypt you know, you know yeah. and, and Morocco you know Nigeria is their feast or famine they can exactly be great. They Nigeria can be great Nigeria I put them. I'm liking their jerseys. I'm liking their jerseys. I, oh, did you see their their away? The the warm ups are beautiful. the way outfits like their travel outfits are fantastic. You know what? I, li- I like the jerseys because they're different and they're not. You know what? Points for being different. Oh, absolutely. In um, five years, they could be hideous, but I don't know. I you know Nigeria could either make the semis or not score a goal. So yeah, I mean they're, they're always they're always kind of like that. And uh, but I, you know I'd, I'd love to see. An African team get into the final eight, or even, final even an four. Asian team. You know, South Korea is always very. Oh yeah, they're they're always competitive. Very sturdy. I guess Japan's going through a thing where where they just change coaches. Yeah, they did. So they not not you know not quite in the same way as Spain, but yeah, they oh yeah they changed coaches. I think uh, after I think after qualification, I think they were locked in, and they and then they end up changing yeah, coaches. I think the but still the sporting new. director I think took over. It was something like that. It was something really weird. And yeah, I'm, they should have just kept Giovanni Trapattoni. <laughs> I mean, he's he's now ninety eight. Right, whatever. right. <laughs> still rolling out uh, there. Before we we, we uh, wrap up, I want to give you your uh, Bruce Arena rant. Oh, my Bruce Arena rant. Yes, I uh, I enjoy only a game on WBUR, and he made an appearance there, and uh, he's made an appearance in Sports Illustrated and a bunch of other places. I think he probably he's on his book tour, his mm. image rehabilitation tour. I guess <laughs> I, I'm just, and I say this. Full well knowing that uh, the union have an opening for a sporting director and uh, that sporting director could choose to bring in a new coach and Bruce Arena could be either one of those people and this (laughs) would get awkward. Uh, But I'm just really tired of the Bruce Arena image rehabilitation tour. I I don't know why people insist on asking him questions. That's the the thing. Why are people putting – and I understand he is who he is. He's Bruce Arena, two-time coach. And I think up to that point, he was – you can make the case he was the best – coach that yeah. the national team ever had yeah. took him deeper um i'm but i'm very much i don't need to hear another word from bruce arena until he gets his next job i don't want to hear any more about there were some great stories written uh that involved probably talking to bruce arena and talking to a lot of people behind yeah. the scenes the the ringer piece that yeah, was co-authored by too, matt jeff pence Car- yeah, and jeff, jeff carlo wrote a great piece and there was a great piece in si that talked to jürgen klinsman Sort of almost against his will, if you read how the the story came about. I forget mm. who that was. It was either S.L. Price or, or someone right. like that. But I don't need to hear from Bruce Arena again until he gets his next job. And I hope he gets another job. I hope his story with American soccer is not done yet because he has given so much to the game. Mm-hmm. But I don't need to hear one more soundbite that's – there's no excuses for us not making the World Cup. But the field in Trinidad was really, really wet. I don't want to hear it anymore. We're not in the World Cup. The U.S. doesn't deserve to be in the World Cup because it couldn't beat Trinidad that had nothing to play for. So they're not wronged in any sort of way. I mean, they they were not good enough to be one of the last 32 nations standing. And I'm just kind of tired is, of hearing about it. There is plenty of blame to pass around. And a uh, lot of it and a lot of it and more of it than even an open armed uh, Bruce Arena would admit belongs to Bruce Arena. A oh, lot oh. of it has to do with him. A lot of it has to do with the players. A lot of it has to do with players who sadly will never play in a mm-hmm. U.S. national team jersey again. Just as sadly are players who, you know, I think it was Dax McCarty had the quote of, and I think Alejandro Bedoya is in this boat, although he's been to a World Cup. But Dax McCarty had the quote of like, this was my one chance yeah. to get to a World Cup. Now I'm never going to get to a World Cup. Right. I'm tired of hearing Bruce Arena about it. That's it. No more. No more Bruce Arena until he gets his next job. And then if people want to ask him about it, by all means. But no more Bruce Arena, no I'm, more what I'm, happened. I'm with you. And I think, you know, a lot of people, I think it, it, it trickles on that. I think Sunil Glady has problems. I, I think you, at least Sunil and Jurgen have at least kind of right. receded. I think Sunil may be a little bit more kicking and screaming. Well, because he still has his hands in a lot of things in U.S. soccer. I mean, even though he's not president anymore, he's on different committees and things like that. Klinsman, I think, is you know, kind of taking time for his next move, which will come. I think he's yeah, you know, he's going to do something. But I think that's just Bruce's personality. He's he he leads with his chin, and he's you know, I, I think a lot of qualities and make Bruce a great coach. Probably a lot of a lot of things that make him what we're seeing right now. This kind of this cantankerous guy, um, 
Yeah, which, is, it, which is all great, and right. it's made him a great coach. And it's, it's, I don't need to hear it anymore. You know, it's not just one thing. It's not just one thing. With the, I mean, the seeds for that disaster in Trinidad were planted probably in like 2006. That that they didn't yeah. that they didn't you know that they missed Olympic cycles. That they missed opportunities to develop youth. That they didn't have that prime 24 to 28 group yeah. in this cycle. And you know, they had the kids, and they had the old guys, and didn't have anybody in the middle really. That that yeah. That took over. So I don't, even but, think, but, it's, I don't but, even think it's just Bruce. I, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to ponder yeah, but, but, Jeff Cameron anymore. But, I don't want to no, ponder. No. I, I don't want to ponder Timmy Chandler anymore. No, but they put. Let's move on. They put. You know, but Bruce is the guy to put Omar, Omar Gonzalez out there. You know, I mean, yeah. Bruce. Bruce is the guy that made those decisions on that night. I mean, this is. You know, and he squawks about this was the player pool I had. Yada yada yada. But you know you. Which there's is not an lot. excuse, even if it sounds like an excuse. <laughs> yeah, but there's so many spots he he zigged when he could should have zagged or could have zagged or whatever. So uh, I guess we're wrapping up on that. I want to thank uh, Marcus Apps for joining us. He was a fun interview. And thank you, Matt the George, for again coming in being that co-host. Uh, Matt, please tell the people where they can find you. So you can find me uh, at DelcoTimes.com. You can subscribe to The Athletic Philadelphia, uh, where Dave Zeitlin and I are creating content. Dave has a great piece up about J.P. Della Camera, mm-hmm. who will be um, calling his eighth consecutive World Cup, yeah. ninth consecutive. I read the story. I proofread it. Yeah. Apparently that <laughs> fact didn't land on me. Um, and we'll also have a, a look at uh, some of the Union guys this week and their World Cup memories and their stories. Yeah. Uh, and you can follow me on Twitter at Sports Doctor MD. And I'm told that uh, when Mike comes back from his honeymoon, we're going to kind of tag, and I'm going to go spend two weeks in the south of France. Yes, that's and exactly. And he's going to come is... in here and talk about wing dynamics with Marcus Epps. So we're going to we're we're still working that out. We're going to figure that out. Um, we'll send Greg there in uh, in. We'll, we'll work. He, you get July. Oh, I appreciate but I, that. I get the I get late. Um, also, uh, before I wrap it up, if nobody if you haven't gotten a chance, please check out the. Special edition podcast we did this week where we sat down with uh, New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy, who is a massive soccer fan and is, I'm sure is a very happy guy right now because it sounds like MetLife is going to be the site of the final in 2026, which is in New Jersey. It's, in, it's not in New York. It's in New Jersey. It's in North Jersey. Um, so, And he was very insightful uh, with his you know, the length and the breadth of his knowledge of the sport and his love and passion of it and it was a really fun interview i was uh, glad i got the opportunity to do it. and i hope uh, everybody out there gets a chance to listen and we'll catch you next week